this morning, which comes to us from the Gospel according to Mark. You are invited, if you have a Bible, to find it. Chapter 16, I'm going to read just verses 1 through 8 of gospel of the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have it, uh, it will be on the screen behind me as well. Hear these words from Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked, they saw that the stone, which was very large, and had been rolled, it had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You know, up until now, when you read the gospel here uh, of Mark, and you see the story of Jesus' last days, it kind of unfolds according to a pretty common pattern. And the pattern is this. A individual rises up in a nation or a state like ancient Israel, like Palestine at the time, and people see this individual as a savior, as a messiah. And he begins to gain a gathering through his ministry, maybe through his teaching and preaching and gathering crowds through uh, rallies and stuff like that. And eventually people start to coalesce around this figure in the hopes that they are going to be the one who can overcome their oppressors. And that's precisely what happened with Jesus. Over time, he had won the crowd over through his preaching, through his teaching, through his many activities that, uh, that amazed people as he raised the dead, as he healed people, as he gave sight to the blind, as he, as he uh, calmed the waters uh, during the storm, as he fed multitudes with very little. People began to coalesce around him and they thought that he was going to be the savior of the people. And, and of course, then the leadership, this is the pattern, the leadership of the community, the power brokers, those who, who kind of run the machine, so to speak, they begin to, to get nervous and they begin to get worried. And so they plot against this individual because they know that they need to shut down their, their movement in order to maintain control and power. And so eventually, somehow, they gain, uh, they arrest this person, they, they derail their movement, they uh, interrupt things to the point where the movement somehow dies because the leader has been removed. Usually the leader is removed perhaps through prison, but often through execution. And that's precisely what happened to Jesus, and that had happened before, and it would happen again. The machine proves to be too strong, and everything seems to fall apart. But that's not what happened this time. 
because uh, even after Jesus died, this movement that he founded, it actually exploded. It grew exponentially so that uh, within 200 plus years or so, um, they had basically taken over this machine that was the Roman Empire. And now, 2,000 years later, Christianity, the way, the Christian faith, is the largest religion in the world. How in the world did that happen? How did this tiny little sect from some little backwoods, kind of obscure part of the Roman Empire, how did it grow so fast, especially in the face of such opposition, in order to take over the Roman Empire and change the world the way it did? You know, sometimes people say that, uh, as Tertullian said many centuries ago, that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And to some degree, that was true in this case. But you know, most of the time, religious persecution works. It stamps out religion in the places where it's trying to grow. But it didn't in this case. How do you explain that it spread through all these centuries to the point where, where it actually shaped, it changed the world that we live in and actually shaped the direction of Western culture for the next 2,000 years. I've mentioned before a guy by the name of Tom Holland. Those of you who like to read history, uh, I encourage you to read his book, Dominion. He's not a Christian, and he argues that this little thing called the Christian faith, which started, like I said, in this little city in, the town, in Jerusalem, in, in Palestine many centuries ago, it literally changed the world. What, what, what caused that? How in the world did that happen? And of course... If you're a Christian, you say the answer is obvious. What happened was the resurrection. Our founder is like no other. Because you see, yes, he was killed, but no, he did not stay dead. He rose again. He came back to life. He was resurrected. And that, we believe, changes everything. Now, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. It provides the least amount of details of the life of Jesus. But even in this passage, we see three things that are worth our consideration this morning. We see that Easter is a challenge. We see that Easter is all about grace. And we see that Easter is a commissioning. Those are the three things we're going to look at here. And the first one is, is Easter is a challenge. And we have to do this every year on Easter. We have to defend the resurrection of Jesus. And that's because it's a miracle that is really, really hard to believe. And that's true. You know, we've been saying uh, throughout these weeks as we've been looking at Jesus that if you want to understand Christianity, if you want to realize what it really is, you are going to have to deal with this character, Jesus Jesus made claims, you see. He said, I'm not just a man who points you to God, who shows you the way to enlightenment, who declares to you how you ought to live because I have found the wisdom behind true life. No, he says, I am God in the flesh, in a person, and I call you to worship me. That's the claims of Jesus. Now, when anybody else ever did that, they were consigned to one of three things. Either they were certified insane and they were put in an institution, or they were disgraced somehow and the truth came out about them, or they were killed for claims like that. But not Jesus. Yeah, he was killed. They tried one of the three options. 
but he didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he proved who he was by his resurrection. He proved he had power over the grave. He proved that he had power over death itself. Now, people, I hope if you're listening, you hear me use this word prove, and maybe it actually grates on you a little bit, on you a little bit. You say, Jesus proved that he was God by rising from the dead. There's no proof of the resurrection. How did Jesus prove the resurrection? Well, actually he did. First of all, look at verse 1 in the passage. In verse 1, it says this, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of, faith, of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now, you might think to yourself, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why is that proof of Jesus' resurrection? Well, simply, it's this. Mark was the earliest of the, all the Gospels. He wrote within the lifetime of the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he actually gives specific names of individuals who witnessed the empty tomb. He talks about the two Marys, and he talks about Salome. And essentially, by naming them, what Mark is saying is, is you don't have to take my word for it. Those of you who are reading this letter, at least in time, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you are free to go and try to, try to track down these individuals and corroborate the story that I'm saying. And notice that, that Mark mentions women, all women. All these first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, they were women. And, and if you're, you know, you, you might be aware that um, first century Israel was a patriarchal culture, meaning it was a man-centered culture. I'm not saying that was right, I'm just saying that's the way it was. And in a patriarchal culture like that, women's testimony was seen as Well, it was not admissible at court because it was highly suspicious. You couldn't trust a woman's testimony. In fact, there was a guy named Josephus. He was a Jewish historian who lived around the same time, between 37, and 100, uh, 37 AD and 100 AD. And in his history, he was one, the earliest historian of the Christian movement. And in his history, he said that one of the reasons you must not believe the story of the resurrection is because the first eyewitnesses were women. And we all know you can't trust women. And yet Mark points out that it was women. He emphasizes the fact that it was women who first were eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Now, if you're going to sell a legend, if you're going to try to pitch a, a, a grand yarn to people to get them to try to believe it, you want to make it as realistic as possible. You don't go out of your way to mention that the first people who saw it were actually what you consider in your culture an unreliable witness. But Mark actually goes out of his way to do that very thing. In verse 40 of chapter 15, just before this, he says, um, some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger of Joseph, and Salome. He mentions women again. And then in verse 47, at the end, he says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. He emphasizes the fact that it was women who saw what was going on. Now, why in the world would he do that? And more than that, these women, the way he characterizes these women is that they don't believe what they saw. You know, we spend 
we tend to think, as modern Western people, and we look back on history, we tend to think that, that people from ancient cultures, they were kind of gullible, they were sort of naive about things, they were superstitious, they could be easily tricked to believe all kinds of crazy things. But look at verse 8 of the passage. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. Why? Because they didn't expect to see a dead body. They did... Or, <laughs> They didn't expect to see an empty tomb. They expected to see a dead body. And you know, what's ironic is, is that Jesus, we've seen this before, Jesus is constantly telling his followers, look, I am going to die, and then in three days I'm going to rise. Mark, as I just mentioned, is the shortest of the gospel uh, writers. His, his gospel story is the shortest of all of them. In Mark alone, on three separate occasions, Jesus says, look, I am going to be handed over, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, but three days later I'm going to live. And that leads us to assume, and I think it's fair to assume, that Jesus probably talked about his death and his resurrection many more times than just those three that Mark recorded. But when you get to the story, the women don't show up at an empty tomb and encounter this man in blazing white who says, he's not here, he is risen, and say to themselves, huh, you know what? He said that, didn't he? Didn't he say this was going to happen? I, I, I got to admit, I didn't kind of believe that that was going to happen, but, but it actually happened. And if you add to that the fact that these women were privy to the fact that Jesus was able to do crazy things like turn water into wine, like take a leper and make them healed, like touch a blind man and all of a sudden he can see, like walk on water, like turn a little bit of a, an afternoon snack into a feast for multitudes. He's able to do all that kind of stuff. And yet, when they encounter this empty tomb, having heard in the past that Jesus was told them he was going to rise from the dead, they still look at the tomb and go, impossible impossible. You know why? Here's why. Their worldview could not account for the idea that someone could rise from the dead. They could not understand that. It was impossible. What I'm trying to say is that basically they're no different from us. They're no different from us. Why did they change the evidence, that's why. The evidence changed their mind. It was, it was irrefutable to them when they discovered that the tomb was empty and then they met a risen Jesus later. They simply had to change their worldview. Now, here's my question. Are you willing to be open-minded enough to let it change your worldview? I know this event happened a long time ago. I know it happened 2,000 years ago. But think about what Jesus is claiming, okay? The story is that there was a man who 2,000 years ago rose from the dead after having been dead, not just like lying on an operating table, after having been hit a couple times with paddles, people saying clear, and then saying, oh, he's flatlined for a bit, and then a few minutes later, he, he wakes up and people are shocked, and they say, whoa, this guy had a near-death experience, and now he writes a book, and there's a movie based on it, and all that kind of stuff, because he went to heaven and came back. That's not this, what's going on here. This is someone who went, who died, who was checked whether he was alive or not, was put in a tomb where the, the, uh, the uh, what are they called? The, uh, the 
leaders, like the, the, I'm having a problem with my mic. Sorry, just hold on. I was on a roll, too. That's, okay. Uh, where the secular leadership, the Romans, and the religious leadership conspired to say, we got to make sure that nobody follows this guy, tries to hide the body, snatch the body, and say something crazy about him, so they put a tomb, or so they put a big stone in the way. This guy rose from the dead never to die again. All those people with those stories about having to, gone to heaven and having a near-death experience, true or not, I don't know. All I know is, is that every single one of them afterwards died eventually, except those who are still alive but will die. You know what I mean. Like the four-year-old boy or whatever his name is. He's, I don't know, he's probably still around. But Jesus rose never to die again. Never to die. And billions throughout these last 2,000 years, you add it all up, there are billions of people who believe that and he changed history by it. That story has changed history. Now, yes, it happened a long time ago. My question is, how recently did it have to happen in order to convince you? 500 years? 200 years? 100 years? In each of those cases, you are not there to witness it yourself. You're going to have to depend on and going to have to believe the witnesses of others. That's how history works. Oh, yeah, there's other ways of finding evidence, archaeology, etc. But ultimately, you've got to believe the witnesses of others. How recently does it have to happen in order for you to at least consider it? Now, if it's not true, if it's fake, no harm, no foul. But if it is true, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then listen, the consequences are absolutely catastrophic if you choose to disregard and disbelieve it without even having spent the time to think it through. Today, people are spending all kinds of time reading blogs and news articles and magazines about important issues like what do we do about, about the pandemic? What do we do about anti-black racism? What do we do about the growing economic uh, uncertainty? What do we do about that? And we research and we try to figure it out and we wrestle through these issues. It boggles my mind how few people who call themselves thinking people take the time to wrestle with the question, was Jesus truly risen from the dead? Nowhere else is this claimed. And if it's true, like I said, the consequences are absolutely catastrophic for those who reject it. And all I'm asking you to do, all I'm asking you to do is give it its proper due. Give it the time it deserves to wrestle through the question. Okay, that was not actually my, my main point. Um, we're going to move on to the main points now. And of course, you're all freaking out and thinking, oh. That, that took forever, and that wasn't the main point. Uh, somebody said, you know, he's going to be yelling for three hours because it's his favorite day, and it's true. Here I go. <laughs> point number two, Easter is all about grace. First of all, Easter is a challenge, but second of all, Easter is all about grace. Look at verse 7. It's so beautiful how, what it says in verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. 
You know, back in chapter 14, Jesus, before his crucifixion, when he was at the Last Supper, he told all his disciples, he says, here's the deal, you guys are all going to bail on me. Every single one of you. You're going to abandon me. As soon as the heat gets turned up, you guys are going to scatter like sheep being chased by wolves. And Peter, of course, stood up and said, never will that happen to me. I will never do something like that, Lord. I am with you thick and thin. I will even die for you. And of course, if you continue reading, you discover that Peter, he was the worst bailer of them all because he had opportunity three times to, to, to say that he was with Jesus, to declare his allegiance to Jesus. And every single time, he blew it. In fact, he goes so far as to, to pour down curses on himself. If, may I be cursed if I'm with this guy. Every single one of his friends left him. And now Jesus is back. And now Jesus is raised from the dead. And now Jesus is indestructible. He has an indestructible body. He is, he's like Superman reborn. And what does Jesus say? He does not say, tell the angels to tell those guys, tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that if they grovel enough, maybe I'll take them back. He doesn't say, you know, especially if they repent, maybe I'll consider it. He says, the angel says, tell them he will see them. And this is how, how Jesus has worked. Jesus has been forgiving and gentle for all, the, all of them all the time. Remember, we looked at Jesus in the garden and, and he took Peter and James and John and he said, come with me, I'm, my soul is sorrowful unto death. I need your support right now. This is the worst time of my life. Things have never been harder for me. I just need you to be with me. Can you stay awake? And three times they fell asleep on their best friend in his greatest time of need as he, as he pictured himself going going to the cross to bear the curse for our sin and they couldn't even stay awake and what does Jesus say to them he says I know I know guys the spirit's willing but the flesh is weak I gotta be honest with you I would have tore a strip off him if it was me and then to top it all off Jesus seems to have a special word for Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter. Now remember, Peter's the one who denied him three times, who worked really, really hard to distance himself from Jesus in Jesus' time of greatest need. And probably he, he was thinking to himself, well, yeah, Jesus is going to invite the 12 back, but I'm sure I'm not one of them. He cannot mean me. I, can't, I completely bailed on him. You guys, you guys go on ahead, forget it. But no, the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter. In other words, Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, despite all you've done, I want you. I want you too. And you know, this is the moment that catalyzes Peter's transformation. It's like this is the moment of Peter's resurrection. Because he is changed after this. He's not perfect, but you go in to Acts chapter 2, and Peter is the one who preaches the very first sermon on Pentecost, and he stands up and he tells these people that he was so terrified of being identified with Jesus in front of them, he stands up with them and he says, this is, he is the Lord, and you crucified him. He shows incredible courage, incredible 
bravery in the, in the face of, of these odds. And, and that is what the gospel does to you. You see, the gospel itself is patterned after the life, death, and resurrection, the whole ministry of Jesus. That's how it works. Because you see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you know what it does? It kills you. When you see him for who he really is, and you see your desperate need for a savior because you are a wicked sinner, more wicked than you're willing to admit, it kills you. It kills your ego, you see. It kills your pride. It kills your self-sufficiency. You say like the prophet Isaiah who stood before the holiness of God and he said, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's how you feel. It kills you. But in the moment that it kills you, it, I want to say reborns you, but that's not the word. It, I'll use it anyway. It reborns you. It gives you new life. You are reborn. You are flooded by the love of God because at the same time, you're looking at this Jesus who died on the cross for you and you're saying, he was happy to die for me. He was willing to take that for me. And now he has been raised from the dead and he, he is utterly untouchable and he is for me. And that love floods into you and it resurrects your character too. You once were fearful and now you are courageous. You once were depressive but now you're hopeful because he's done this incredible work in you. Last thing. It's grace, it's grace, it's all of grace. You didn't ask for it. You didn't even hope for it. You know that? You didn't even hope for it. It wasn't on your radar. You weren't thinking about it. You had no idea that Jesus 2,000 years ago was living this life of suffering and dying this substitutionary death for you and breaking the bars of, of hell itself for you. He did all this before you knew anything about it or had any interest in it at all. You were too busy wrapped up in your own little self-centered world, your tiny small kingdom that you're trying to, to create and trying to build on your own. And he invaded your life and said, sinner, arise, awake, O sleeper, and bask in the glory of your risen Savior, who welcomes you into his open arms. And that's why the last thing, it's all of grace. I keep going back and saying it's all grace. I'll move on to the last thing. It's a, it's a commissioning. You know, the, the angel doesn't just say, hey, he's risen. Woohoo! The angel says, hey, he's risen, go and tell. They were alarmed. He says, don't be alarmed. He is risen, go and tell. Now, I admit, the women didn't do what they were supposed to do at first. But the implication is nevertheless the same. If Jesus is risen from the dead, that truth reshapes your life. You need to reshape your life around this news. It, it changes absolutely everything. It changes the way you face life. It changes the way you face the world. You are changed, and the way you look at the world is changed. You know, I, I've talked to you many times about my hero, right? I'm a theology nerd and a preacher, so 
My hero is a preacher, Tim Keller. And last fall, Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about cancer, it's about as bad as it gets. And he doesn't know if he's going to survive it. He doesn't know. He's getting treatment. It's been helpful, but the prognosis, nevertheless, is not very good. And he has to wrestle with the fact that, that he may very well be dying. Some of us are given the privilege, and I dare call it a privilege, of knowing that we are dying. Most of us go through life spending most of the time not realizing that all of us are dying. And in The Atlantic, he wrote an article about this, and he talked about how he desperately needed courage to face this prospect. He needed comfort. Now, this is a man who has been a preacher of the gospel, a teacher of ministers, a writer of incredible books. He is respected and renowned around the world for his teachings and his, his intellect, but also what looks like his incredible belief. And you know what he said? He said, I had to revisit the gospel I'm sorry, I had to revisit the resurrection in order to experience the comfort and courage that I need. Because you see, prior to having this enter into his life, prior to this diagnosis, he says, you know, before the resurrection was, was kind of theoretical to me. But now, as I'm clinging to mor mortality and, and, and thinking about the fact that I may be dying, he says, now to me it is everything it is absolutely everything. And why is it everything? Because of what we just talked about during the time of confession when the, the worship team led us through 1 Corinthians 15. Because if Jesus is truly raised from the dead, then that means the Bible is true. And you can trust it. And what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about life? What does the Bible say about the world? Well, I'll just tell you, okay? Let me throw the Bible at you figuratively. Here's what it says about life. Psalm 90 verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. 1 Peter 1 verse 24 and 25. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall and the word of the Lord stands forever. James chapter 4 verse 14. What is your life? <sighs> for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's life. Friends, you are the blink of an eye. Your lifespan is this. Or how about this? And what about the world? What about the world? What does the Bible say about the world? Well, Jesus in Matthew 24, he, he said heaven and earth will pass away. 1 John 2 says the world and its desires will pass away. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is what's true according to the Bible and because the resurrection's true, the Bible is true, this is what's true about life. This is what's true about the world. It is fleeting. It is short. It is a blink. It is a breath. It is a beautiful annual flower that 
rises in April and is gone by May, you and I are, are, are like this. And most of us know that intuitively. But we ignore it. We ignore it because it's depressing, because it's terrifying, really. Honestly, we make so much of the 80 years that we have here, if we get that. Many people don't. But we make so much of it. It is so important to us to build our empire, whatever it looks like. It can be a familial empire. It can be an economic empire. It can be a reputational empire. It can be a preaching empire. But we feel like we've got to build it. (laughs) And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and me, in all honesty, if your great-grandchildren know your name, that's a win. If your great-grandchildren know where you were born or where you grew up or what you did for a living, that's a miracle. You know, most of us are going to be no longer remembered 50 years after we're dead. Some people get remembered like for 500 years. Some people maybe even get remembered for about 4,000 years. But if the universe is 14 billion years long, who cares? But if the resurrection is true, friends, everything changes if the resurrection is true. Yes, life's still fleeting on this earth. It is. And history is ending, but it's not the end of the story. It's not you and me and the universe just sort of fizzling out in the darkness of eternity. No. Because Jesus was raised, we will be raised. You see, the resurrection is an invasion of the life to come into this life. It is an invasion of the world to come into this world. Jesus is the first fruits. That means there's more fruit coming. His resurrection is just an indication of our resurrection coming. And you know what that means? That means the end of suffering. That means the end of pain. That means the end of heartache. That means the end of gloom. Did you know, I don't know, some of us probably don't know this, but if you try to read the Bible the way it actually is written and listen to what it says about suffering, for so many of us, it is kind of a punch in the gut. Because it says some stuff about our suffering that is really, really, really hard to hear. Listen to what it says in Romans 8, verse 18. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. How does Paul have the nerve to say that? Some of you have suffered deeply. Some people throughout history, I mean, you read the biographies and it's absolutely shocking how much suffering some people have to endure over the course of a lifetime. And Paul says, it's not even worth comparing. And if that's not bad enough, Paul, Paul, who was beaten 
many times, was whipped many times, who was stoned numerous times, who was chased out of the city many times, who was hated and attacked, was shipwrecked over and over, who was thrown in jail, who eventually died a martyr's death. This guy, the Apostle Paul, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You're wasting away your chronic pain and suffering. Paul calls it a light and momentary trouble. How on earth can he say it? The only way he can say it is because of the resurrection. Why is it so hard for us to face suffering? Why is it so hard for us to admit that death is staring all of us in the face? Why is it so hard for you and me to do hard things? Hard things we know we should do. It's going to cost us money. Maybe it's going to cost us a friendship. Maybe it's going to cost us a romantic relationship. Maybe it's going to cost us a reputation. And it is so hard for us to do it. You know why it's so hard for us to do it? Because we think that this broken world is the only one we're going to get. And so we put all our eggs in this basket and we chase it with everything we've got. You ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? Some of you have. She was a 19-year-old, possibly 20. 20-year-old girl, swimming accident. She became a paraplegic, no feeling from the shoulders down. She's now in her 70s, has suffered a lot, including cancer in her own life. Listen to what she writes. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful, and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? See, the promise of the resurrection, friends, is that if you long to dance but can't, you one day will. The promise of the resurrection is that if you long for intimacy but haven't found it, you one day will. If you long for family but you've never known it because you've grown up in an abusive or broken circumstance and you long for that, you know that there is an ache within you for that, you will one day have it. You long to be free from your anxiety or from your depression or from your anger or from the scars of abuse or from the, the, the pull of addiction. You long to be finally and fully free of it. You one day will have it. That's the promise of the resurrection. And when that sinks deep into your soul, right here, right now, when you look at this book and you believe its testimony, then that resurrection power starts to infiltrate your life in the here and now. So that when you hurt and, and are in pain because of a lost loved one, you can say, one day I will see them again. When you are, are dealing with depression and anxiety and you feel like it, it, it's overwhelming you, you can say, no, one day you will be gone because Jesus has risen and it lifts your soul in the moment. Because as you practice resurrection life in the here and now, it begins 
to shape and change you just like it did Peter. It breaks into you now. It's like the dawn, okay? You're not going to get the full light of the sun on this side of glory, I know, but you get the sunrise. You get the dawn. You see the light shining over the horizon and you say, nothing can change that. I am now indestructible. I'll end with this quote. E. Stanley Jones writes it, and it's so beautiful. He says, The early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. That's what's happening a lot right now, isn't it? You know, COVID, war, persecution, economic collapse, unrest. A lot of us Christians are going, Look what the world's come to. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Look what the world's come to. That's me. I admit it. I sit there in my lazy boy at night watching the news with my wife and I look over to her and I say, I don't know what the world's come to. (sighs) The early Christians didn't do that. You know what they said? In delight. They said, look what has come into the world. They saw not merely ruin, but the resources for the reconstruction of that ruin. They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss, and moral nerve, and fatalism to faith and confidence that sin had at last met its match. That something new had come into the world. That not only here and there, but on a wide scale, men could attain to the hitherto impossible thing, goodness. Please pray with me. Holy Father, look what has come into the world. Resurrection life. We see it all around us as the The flowers are poking through the soil. Everything is starting to turn green. The warmth of the sun on our faces and on the land is just a dim reminder that the dawn has broken for all eternity already. Jesus has risen and one day we will too. Give us the courage and hope to live out of that joy no matter what we face, in Jesus' name, amen.